If you're new with us, uh, we're going through the Gospel of Luke verse by verse, and today uh, we'll try to finish up uh, chapter 5. And so let's pray together as we look at this wonderful passage uh, in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 39. Lord Jesus, we're here to declare we have no king but you. And we recognize that you rule your church with the scepter of your word. And you preserve your church by your grace. And we pray that today, by your grace, we would hear and obey your word. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Well, today, guys, we get to talk about Jesus and food. Two great topics. Would you agree? One of the things that I've enjoyed doing over the last, I don't know, five or six years, the last two years notwithstanding, is going on various food tours in uh, various cities. I don't know if you've ever taken a food tour or not, but uh, we've, we've had the pleasure of doing this in a couple of uh, cities uh, around the world and a handful of times here in the city of Raleigh. If you've never done that, perhaps a, a less bougie experience, but a, a wonderful experience nonetheless is to visit a friend in his or her city and have them show you around the city, show you their favorite restaurants, that sort of thing. Uh, one time my son Joshua took me on a food tour of the Golden Corral. Uh, which was also a, a wonderful uh, food uh, dining experience. Um, and if you, if you have no friends and you've never done a food tour, um, then maybe you've at least watched the Food Network. And you, you, uh, I love these shows. I drive my family crazy watching these shows of uh, seeing the various restaurants in different cities around the world. You might say that Luke, in his gospel, takes us on a bit of a food tour. He presents to us Jesus frequently in the gospel here, as one who is dining with different individuals. Not in restaurants, but in various homes. And the story of Jesus dining with Levi, better known as Matthew, and his tax-collecting buddies, is the first of several table talks in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus uses the table as an opportunity to teach. And in this particular occasion, Jesus is once again ministering to those who are on the edges of society. And he does it in Levi's own home and at a great feast, at a party. Now, if you've been around IDC for any length of time, you probably would have heard something about uh, our emphasis on the ministry of hospitality, of opening up our homes and opening up our lives and welcoming people in and, and showing people the kind of grace that Jesus has shown us as the one who welcomed us, who brought us into his kingdom. And a text like this is one of many texts that establishes kind of the biblical rationale for how we use our home and how we display grace at something as ordinary as a dinner. We've done series before around this topic, uh, even using the Gospel of Luke in a short series eight, eight nine years ago on, uh, uh, around uh, Tim Chester's book, A Meal with Jesus. We've also promoted Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. My favorite title of a book on this subject is a book by a guy named Robert Karras, who wrote a book called Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel. And Karras says that in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either at a meal, coming from a meal, or going to a meal. In fact, if your fingers are nimble, you can see this in uh, Luke chapter 7. The, the next kind of dining scene happens when Jesus is with one of the Pharisees who've asked him to come eat with him. And of course, Jesus is not there because they really want to hang with Jesus. They want to trap Jesus. And in that particular story, Jesus teaches uh, through a living example about the power of his forgiveness. 
And then in chapter 11, we catch another glimpse of Jesus at the table with another table talk. And again, he is there dining with a Pharisee and he is reclining at table and goes into uh, some teaching again. Chapter 14 is very significant because Jesus is not only um, uh, at, a, at an event hosted by a religious leader, but he goes on to teach about being a guest properly, the, uh, of, of how, where to sit, and then how to actually host a party properly with the kingdom of God in mind. And the great story of Jesus and the prodigal son takes place in light of uh, the, the accusation that they make about Jesus that he receives sinners and eats with them. And then finally in Luke 19, we see that Jesus goes to the home of another tax collector, Zacchaeus. And we read about the big change in that small man's life. And that's significant. Jesus here is showing us at the table kind of what he came to do and, and what he was about and how he went about doing it. In Tim Chester's book, A Meal with Jesus, he asked this question, how would you complete this sentence? The Son of Man came. Well, we know from Luke's gospel that he came to seek and save the lost. And Mark tells us that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But few people would recognize what is said in Luke 7:34. he came eating and drinking. And the first two shows us why Jesus came. And the second show us one of the primary ways that Jesus sought to save people by eating and drinking. And so for Jesus, meals were occasions to display revolutionary grace. They were occasions to teach about the kingdom of God. And so when we practice hospitality, by the way, the word hospitality means love for strangers, compound word, philos, brotherly love, and xenos, stranger, a love for stranger. That's what hospitality is. It's to be distinguished from entertaining. We're not trying to show off or trying to serve. And it's to be distinguished from fellowship, which is what we do among Christians. Hospitality is about opening up our arms, opening up our homes, opening up our lives, and welcoming people the same way Jesus has welcomed us. And Jesus gives us the ability to engage in mission in a very ordinary way that has eternal significance. And here it's put on display with the story of Jesus and Levi. So sometimes people have, have asked, you know, how do I get plugged into the mission of IDC? Often anticipating a program or a ministry, and that's, that, that we have those too. But I love to sometimes respond with, eat with people. How can you get engaged in mission? It's actually, if you do eat, is to, to be with people, to befriend them, to invite them. And so that's what we're looking at today, a, a table talk that occurs around really two particular questions. And the first is, they're, they're wondering why Jesus eats with sinners. And the second, they're wondering why Jesus eats at all. The first story is about feasting, and the second story is about fasting. Both of these conversations happen in the same event, and both are controversial. I don't know if you remember last week I said that the healing and the forgiving of the paralytic began a series of controversy stories. And there they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus is there forgiving sins because of who he is. Next, with the story of Levi, there's a controversy over friendship and feasting, and then a controversy over fasting. And next week, uh, Walter will lead us through chapter 6, 1 to 11, a controversy over the Sabbath. And so Jesus is presented to us in a wonderfully powerful way as the friend of sinners, the forgiver of sinners, the one who calls sinners to repentance, the one who is the bridegroom 
of the church and the one who is the Lord over the Sabbath. Now, many people are attracted to Jesus for these reasons. Other people can't stand it. Which is why Mark, at this point, at the end of his, uh, the section on the Sabbath, writes that some wanted to destroy Jesus. Luke says, at the end of the Sabbath controversy in verse 11 of chapter 6, they were discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. And that's what grace does to people. It attracts some, and what we're seeing in Luke's gospel, it attracts the people that you think would not be in the kingdom. And it angers others. And in the gospel, it's often the religious leaders. And so the question for us is, how do we respond to this grace? Do we receive it and rejoice in it and reflect it ourselves? Or do we live kind of this pharisaical, separatist lifestyle? And so let's look at the text together under two headings. First of all, Jesus and feasting. Secondly, Jesus and fasting. I like feasting better, so let's start there. And that's where Luke starts, right? We begin with Levi's calling. We got this guy, Levi. You need to know something about his genes. He was a despised man. Um, thank you. Um, <laughs> they get better, don't worry, I think. Um, and Jesus sees this guy sitting at a, a tax booth. And um, there may be tax people here. We, we, we love you in Jesus' name. Most of us don't like uh, taxes, uh, especially, well, I'll avoid all political commentary at this point. Um, but they really didn't like Levi because the tax collectors in his day um, were working for the Roman oppressors. And interestingly, um, Levi, one of the things that these tax collectors would have been taxing would have been fish as the major industry there in Capernaum. And so Jesus has already called some fishermen to be his disciples, and now he's going to call the guy that they probably hated, Levi, Matthew, to also be one of his disciples. Now, we have to get, a, I think, a picture of, of publicans, as they're sometimes referred to in different translations, of tax collectors. They were, were notorious for taking additional money for being corrupt, uh, being snoops, you might say. Um, and you get a glimpse of that back in chapter 3 when John the Baptist is preaching and the tax collectors say, what should we do? And he says, collect no more than you're authorized to do. That was the common understanding of, of what was going down with the tax collectors. Some have even likened Levi and his cohorts to be like present-day mafia. And that really hits, hits us in a striking way, doesn't it? That one of the guys that Jesus would, would call to himself to be a follower would be a guy in the mafia. But that's Jesus' way, isn't it? It reminds me of a story several years ago. I was in uh, Staten Island, New York, and we were supporting a church planter. And uh, a former mafia leader had gotten converted and was given his testimony. And my pastor friend Ray said that the house was filled with mafia on this particular night to hear their friend give a testimony about what the Lord had done in his life. And one guy was particularly moved and he wanted to talk to the pastor, but before he talked with him, he asked the pastor if he was uh, wearing a wire. He's like, hey, pastor, you're not wearing a wire, are you? Um, and he, he kept calling his name Mendez. He was going by a false name. Because Ray was like, he's not Italian, he was Spanish. He wasn't no Mendez, you know? Um, and, and that's kind of the crew you've got with, with, with Levi and his cohorts. Um, they, they were known for this corrupt lifestyle. And Jesus sees him, initiates this encounter, 
and says, follow me. The same thing he said to the fishermen. And with his word, Levi leaves everything to follow him. It's really remarkable. The power of Jesus' word. The same power that got this paralytic up is the same power that got Levi up out of a tax booth. The same power that calls us forth to follow him. Very, very simple calling. Follow me, Jesus says. And it says that he left everything and followed him. Now, I don't think we should take this to mean that he left every single belonging that he had. In fact, in the next verse, he makes a great feast for Jesus. So he didn't lose all of his money and possessions. But he did leave all of the old loyalties behind for a new loyalty in following Jesus. And that's what it means to be a Christ follower, doesn't it? It means abandoning old lifestyle habits, old loyalties, and replacing them with a superior loyalty to Jesus Christ. And that happened in this man's life, which should encourage all of us. Jesus Christ can change anyone. He takes this, this guy, this, this, this scoundrel, Levi, and he makes him one of the first followers. Well, then Levi wants to celebrate. We see the company that Jesus keeps in verses 29 and 30. He wants to celebrate his call to discipleship with a meal with his friends. And we read here that this is no um, chip and dip affair. This is a great feast. We don't know what they were having, but I'm sure it was a glorious dinner party. This is not, uh, you know, the Mickey D's land, air, and sea burger. <laughs> Some of you have seen that. How in the world can you eat that thing? Mick Jagger couldn't put his mouth around that thing. This would have been really good food, I'm sure. Um, what Luke does want us to know is, is not about the menu, but about who's present. And it's all of his little running mates. A large company of tax collectors. Isn't that awesome? The only people that Levi probably could, uh, the only friends that he would have had would probably have been other tax collectors. But here, they're at a meal with the Son of God. Now, in the ancient Near East, in the Jewish way of life, to have a meal with someone meant more than it usually means uh, for us. It was a boundary marker. And you were crossing a boundary into friendship, into intimacy, into unity. It was more than just the way to nourish another person. To have a meal was a big deal. And Levi here is saying to his friends, we are great sinners but Christ is a greater Savior. That's what brings us together. And he wants his friends to know the grace that he's experienced in Jesus Christ. And so Luke tells us that Jesus didn't just stop by for a bit. He is reclining at table. Joel Green, New Testament scholar, argues that the context is actually a blending together of the Jewish way of life, of, of having meals, as I've just mentioned, but also of the Greco-Roman symposium, given the background of Levi and his Roman tie, ties. And, and this would have involved not just eating, but long discussion, and a discussion that was not ex entirely private. But there was usually a host that was a, a man of, of means, and, or wisdom, or both, and then a guest who was the special guest with all the wisdom, and then everyone else engaging in the dialogue and discussion. And because it wasn't private, you see the Pharisees are present, and they're able to observe the discussion and raise questions. And so at this symposium, at this feast, the question is raised, why do you eat and drink 
with tax collectors and sinners. Because for a Pharisee to eat with people who are unclean meant that you shared in their sin. To eat with people who were not respectable meant that you were not respectable. And one of the ways the Pharisees believe you showed your devotion to God is by not having any contact with those who are not respectable. And that's where their name comes from. The name Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word to mean the separate one. And so what is on their mind is how can a godly person, a holy person, be around unclean individuals, sinful individuals, and yet Jesus knows how to do this. (laughs) Jesus knows it's possible to be separate from sin but not isolated from sinners. And that is the tension we offer. That's where we run into the challenge, isn't it? Because Jesus is not endorsing their sinful life. He's actually calling them to repent of it. But he's actually there also first to love and serve. He's he's there present with them, showing grace to them without participating in whatever it is that they're participating in. The Pharisees have no category for that. And so they do what they do really well in the Gospels. They grumbled. Their spiritual gift of grumbling. They're critiquing his Hebrew. One of them saw him at Subway eating a ham sandwich. You know, they're critiquing everything, trying to uh, uh, throw shade at Jesus. But I'm glad they do in this occasion because we get a great answer from Jesus. When he explains the nature of his ministry, when he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And praise God for that. Jesus is the great physician who has come to heal us. Most of us go to the doctor when we're sick, don't we? I mean, you might have an annual physical, but you don't see doctors running around door to door just to tell people, you're healthy. Your cholesterol is great. You're at the right body weight. That would be really weird. We usually just see the doctor when we're sick. And so why critique Jesus, the great physician, when he is around sick people? Why blame the doctor for doing his job? Like you don't, wouldn't blame a plumber for cleaning out a sewer or a mechanic for fixing a broken car. That's why they exist. That's what their job entails. And Jesus is the great physician, and his great job is to heal all of us who are spiritually sick. And there's only one doctor that can do that. There's only one physician that can cure the great problem that you and I have called sin. And it's the one who took our place on the cross in order to heal us, in order to save us. The Pharisees, having a hard time putting this together, Jesus doubles down on it and says, I have not come to call the righteous, that is the self-righteous, those who don't think they need a physician. I've not come to call them, they won't come. I've come to call sinners to repentance. So notice here, how it is that we're healed through repentance. How it is that we're saved through repentance. So again, Jesus is with the sinners. He's with these tax collectors, but he is not there just to hang with them and affirm all that they're doing. He shows grace and love to them, but then he calls them to repent and to leave that lifestyle and to follow Jesus. And that's, he's modeling for us what we do as well. He didn't require repentance first before loving them and eating with them. He called them to it in the context of that meal. 
So see from this story, if you're not a Christian, you are not beyond the reach of Jesus' saving grace. All you need to know is that you're sick and look to Jesus for cleansing. The story of Levi is that Jesus has come for all of us. But there's also hope, I think, in all of these meal scenes in Luke's gospel, there is an anticipation of a greater meal. Just as when Jesus comes to heal a person, it's an anticipation of total healing to come in the new heaven and new earth. Or when he casts out demons, it's a picture uh, there will be no demons present in the new heaven and new earth. Here he's putting on the kingdom, the kingdom of God on display through this meal. It's just a little foretaste of the great meal that you and I will enjoy forever. Our first parents in the garden ate forbidden fruit, and that caused separation from God. But Jesus has come to reconcile us to God where we can eat and drink with him in a new garden. And it's extended to people like Levi and like us. And this story reminds us of the great mission that we have, that meals we can use to turn strangers into friends, indeed into brothers and sisters. And we should also be mindful of if we're going to live out the missional lifestyle of Jesus Christ, some religious people won't like it. To follow a controversial Christ will make you sometimes controversial among the religious elite. But let's follow Jesus. Let's get out of our comfort zone and let's find our Levi's. That's people, not your genes. Let's, let's extend that warm invitation. Let's, let's befriend. Let's listen. Let's engage. Let's pray this year that Jesus will lead us to lead someone to him through this kind of gospel-centered hospitality. Now, secondly, quickly, there's Jesus in fasting. First, Jesus is criticized for eating with sinners. Now he's criticized for eating. And he's introduced here to, the, introduces us to the topic of the bridegroom. Now, we're not told who they are, the people who raised the question, and they said to him, it doesn't really matter. But they say, you know, the disciples of John fast, the disciples of the Pharisees ask, or fasted, so um, why don't your disciples? Now, we know elsewhere that Jesus assumes that disciples will fast. Fasting is a good thing. I'll say more about that in a moment. But his answer is very interesting when he says, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Can you imagine going to a wedding and have no food? <laughs> First of all, nobody would come. Uh, <laughs> I mean, a wedding is a time to party. Can you imagine getting a wedding invitation that said, oh, we'd love for you to come. You know, it's like a, a tombstones on the picture. Uh, there's going to be no food, no drink. Um, we're, we're just fasting. No, that's a time for joyful celebration. <laughs> Imagine getting a wedding invitation that says, please join us in a spirit of contrition and brokenness as a new son-in-law enters our family. <laughs> no, man, we, we, we get down at weddings, you know? Uh, Kimberly and I, we, we, we left our ceremony to joyful, joyful, we adore thee, and I was showing off my Baptist moves, um, you know? <laughs> that when there's a wedding, you celebrate. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. I'm physically with the disciples. This is not a time for fasting. It's a time for feasting. It's a time for joy. He says there's going to be a time, though, in verse 35, where the bridegroom is taken away. This is one of the first uh, references to the cross, that his life will be taken away. They will take him to the cross. And then when Jesus 
eventually resurrects, ascends to heaven, then they will fast. There will be a sense of longing in their soul for Jesus to return. They will be living in a broken world that's not right, therefore they'll fast. They'll have great burden in their heart and they'll fast. But not in this unique moment in which Jesus is speaking. He says it's it's silly to be fasting. What are they fasting about? I'm present with them. Now, what time are we in? I would say we are in both. We are in a time of great joy as Christians. We should see this beautiful picture of Jesus as the bridegroom with his church. It's a time of joy. Following Jesus, being one of his disciples, is not boring. It's joyful. Jesus brings joy. His first miracle is at a wedding. He turns water into wine. He says he's the bridegroom here. Dead religion doesn't bring you joy, but Jesus does. So right now is a time for joy. But that joy is not consummated yet. It's not completely uh, full in our hearts, is it? Why? Because the bridegroom's been taken away from us. But one day, church, we will see our bridegroom. We will see him face to face. And all of our longings, and all of our frustrations, and all of our anxieties, and all of the sin, and all of the brokenness of this world will be dispelled. And then we won't fast anymore. But now we fast, we pursue Jesus, and we experience joy. There's a mingling in the Christian experience of sorrow and joy of deep delight and a yearning for more. Now when we do fast, I think Jesus is showing us the proper motive here, it's to be centered on Jesus. Other religions fast, but Christian fasting is Christ-centered. We are expressing our adoration to Jesus, longing for Jesus to come again, pouring out our hearts to Jesus. Fasting is, is, we should not think that God owes us something for giving up some food. No, we're fasting because we want the nearness of Christ. We want the joy of Christ. And we we want Jesus to come again. So it's always to be Christ-centered. That's what Jesus says about being the bridegroom. And then Jesus uses this occasion, final bit, verses 36 to 9. He tells two parables that make the same point, and he uses this to describe the nature of his overall ministry and to summarize what he's been saying. So after this give-and-take discussion, he gives this parabolic commentary with uh, 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 putting a new patch on a, off of a new garment onto an old garment and the uh, silliness of trying to put new wine into old wineskins. And his point in both of these parables is that he is not simply an add-on to the religion of the day. The old Mosaic regulations have to give way to Christ. Jesus is, as the writer of Hebrews says, the substance to which the shadows pointed. So don't be messing around with these old Mosaic regulations. Don't be content with the old Pharisaical traditions. Jesus didn't come to simply patch up Judaism. He came to offer the world something entirely greater. He came to bring in a new covenant, a new way of life. He he came to pour out his spirit into our hearts. And so he says, you, you can't put a new patch on an old garment. You would, it, the, first of all, it wouldn't match. The hole would probably get worse as the new garment shrinks. There would be all sorts of problems with that. And then he goes this parable about new wine into old wineskins. And it's, 
Again, the same point. These, these wineskins were often made out of goat skin, kind of like a canteen, very malleable. And as the wine was, was put into them, you know what would happen. The wine would ferment, and the brittle, old wineskins could not contain the fermenting wine. And so you would lose the wine and the wineskin as it would burst. And Jesus is saying here, you cannot squeeze me into your old molds. You can't think that I am simply here to just give you a few additional thoughts to your preformed traditions. I've come to bring new wine. I've come to bring a new age. I've come to bring a new creation. And you need a new receptacle to, see, to receive it. And the Pharisees don't want it. And it's very sad, isn't it? In verse 39, as he says, No one, after drinking old wine, desires the new, for he says the old is good. Now, in other words, Jesus says, you would think that everybody would want this new wine. The new wine that Jesus brings that is uh, parabolic of joy, freedom, forgiveness, new creation. You would think everyone wanted Jesus. But no, some prefer their old ways. They say, we're just good. Thank you very much. We're good the way we are. Now, Jesus is not talking about literal wine or it doesn't really work because... We all know that old wine is better than new wine. And if you've got the option, you're going to pick old wine. And he, but he's saying to these Pharisees and religious leaders, you have no interest in the new wine. The new wine is actually better in this analogy. But the Pharisees are positive that the old is better. They don't want to taste the new. But Jesus has come to bring the new wine. He's assuming that not everybody will want him, as he says, some will just be content saying, no, the old is good. You can have Jesus. So, many people today prefer moralistic religion. Be good, do good, try harder. Maybe you can merit eternal life. Or aesthetic religion, self-denial, self-sacrifice, hoping to earn God's favor. Jesus has come to bring new wine. He's come to bring freedom, full forgiveness, new creation. He calls all of us to leave everything, all the old loyalties, to repent and follow him. And that's not safe, but that's the new wine. He's not calling us to keep religion in a building for an hour or two. He's calling us to wholehearted devotion to him. So, we got this, this option in front of us, right? We can experience the grace and transformation that Levi experienced, or we can stay stuck in old dead religion. The story is told of an eagle that was once a tourist attraction, and this eagle was tethered to a pole, sadly. And the eagle, day after day, would walk around the pole, and it had created a rut because it kept the same path day after day after day. And then a new owner finally arrived, at the tourist attraction, and he decided that he was going to cut the tether and let the eagle go. And so all the people waited to see the eagle soar. And when the new owner let the eagle go, to everyone's surprise, it just kept walking around the pole, staying in the rut. That's what these Pharisees were doing. Jesus came to set us free. But you have to get out of an old rut. You can't be content with the old mosaic regulation Jesus is saying. 
I've come to give you something new. And praise God today, church, following Jesus is a life of joy. It's a life of hope. It's a life of real forgiveness. It's a life of real life. He is our bridegroom. We are his bride. And one day we will see our Christ. And then fasting will end. And the ultimate feasting will begin. A feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb that will make every food show and every food tour pale in comparison with you and I and people like Levi around the table feasting with our king. He's made it all possible and to him be all praise. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, for your grace, and we thank you for the transformation you have wrought in our hearts and thousands of others as you have displayed revolutionary love and grace and truth Thank you for the story of Levi. We pray for those who may not be followers of of yours yet, that you would draw them powerfully to yourself today. And I pray that your love would compel us to extend the same gracious hospitality and care for others. Even now, Lord Jesus, as we prepare our hearts to take the table, we do so in anticipation, knowing that we'll take it anew with you, our bridegroom. So increase our gratitude and our thankfulness. Even now, in your good name we pray. Amen.